Well, so here's the thing. Animals don't conceptualize about death because they don't think about the future. So when a gazelle is running from a lion, they connect that to pain Mm-hmm. And they also have some hardwired circuits, but they don't have death as an abstract concept. But we are able to, to visualize the future, to visualize things that we can't touch and feel. So even when we're not in pain, we could scare ourselves to death. Right. You know, yeah. and <laughs> we can terrify ourselves imagining bad stuff. And once you solve a problem, your brain goes to the next bad stuff. So your brain never stops sort of scanning for lions. Welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Thank you for subscribing. Today, my guest is Loretta Bruning of Inner Mammal Institute. She is the author of several very cool books. Okay, so there's I Mammal Beyond Cynical, and Grease Less. So yeah, so basically, um, she is a retired professor from the academic world, a PhD. And, uh, and now she's been kind of like working in the space of studying animal behavior and mammal behavior specifically, to write about how we all have um, a mammal inside of us and how to make peace with the animal inside of us. So Without further ado, this is a lot of fun, and it helps uh, on many levels to uh, basically understand why we are the way we are. And uh, this was a big light bulb moment for me when I uh, when I first heard about this. So uh, strap in. This you're going to learn a lot, and these books, uh, if applied, can really help you make sense of a lot of behaviors that make me seem uh, make us seem you know a little crazy. But anyway. Uh, please enjoy lots of laughing and uh, my chat with Loretta Bruning, PhD, InnerMammalInstitute.org. Enjoy. Are you ready to thoughtfully steer away from your revved up, frenzied, and far too often scripted life? Then welcome to Vroom Vroom Veer with Jeff Smith, where he guides you down the road differently traveled by sharing unique experiences with guests who have managed to shift away from a life stuck on cruise control and veered their way into a more authentic and fulfilling one in all sorts of interesting and kind of remarkable ways. Get ready to Vroom Vroom Veer with your differently traveled road chauffeur, Jeff Smith. I signed up for your newsletter too. I, I've basically Good. fallen in, fallen in love with your work now because it, it makes a lot of sense. Obviously, yeah. you know that, but I mean, as far as like addiction and habit yes. forming, yeah, duh. I mean, who am I telling? But yeah. I, you get yeah. it that I, I'm. It's not just an academic thing for me anymore. I want to yeah. kind of use these things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, to me, it explains everything and solves everything. Right. But it really doesn't mesh that easily with people's pre-existing views and uh, people are always... Me. It does good, for good, me. Good. Yeah. Because um, I think it... Because I've heard a lot of these things before coming from non-academics, but mostly like people talking about uh, maybe just like non-denominational, non-spiritual habit people. Those folks are out there. Um, I see a lot of this stuff uh, in uh, Buddhism. Um, 
a lot, you know, about, especially about the, um, when you talk about how cortisol gives you that feeling like you need to do something, uh, right. I need to do something now, right. That, that feeling. Yes. Lots of yes. spiritual traditions talk about that. Feeling. Oh, good. Good. Okay. Yeah. The, <laughs> the, the problem I have is the mainstream media picks up from academia and academia only focuses on politically correct habits of which they're like, okay, blaming other people for racism and blaming America for your bad eating habits. And so all of the examples revolve around those two habits. And the problem with that is they're always focused on pointing to other people's habits and not taking responsibility for your own experience or right. blaming the outside world for your habits and not looking at the internal mechanism. Yeah. Oh, yeah. See, that that's... Um you know, you could say like, that's sort of like the, the big, uh, lie that our ideology, our political commercial sort of like that. There's a reason why they, they want to do that right to us. Yes. <laughs> yes, yes. But, um, to not be paranoid, um, right. let me give you the reason from an animal perspective. Okay. okay. Yeah, please. So we'll, we'll go ahead and say this is the show now and we'll say hi yeah. later. <laughs> Okay, good. Yeah. Go ahead. Because I've been recording this whole time. So we're okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when you watch the news, you listen to the news, it's easy to get a, a repeated, frustrating, downer, almost paranoid sense of things. And it's easy to think that this is because of our times or because of a certain group of people. So it's fascinating to know that all of human history and before that, monkeys have the same dynamic going on. So to me, it's relieving, makes it less is. frustrating. So I'll give you a simple example. So every in every group of baboons, let's say, there's a lot of internal friction. And if you were a baboon, you would probably think, geez, I would just love to get rid of these guys and go out on my own and not fight over every banana. <laughs> but if you did that, you would instantly be eaten by a lion and then or your children would be eaten by a lion, right, your genes right. would be wiped out, and then we could not be descended from that kind of baboon. Right. So we're descended from the guy who said, I'm going to stick with these jerks despite the frustration. <laughs> and it's because there's always a common enemy. So every mammal group has internal tensions, but they stick together because there's a common enemy. Right. And it's fascinating to know that even elk, even um, lions, you think, well, lions are not worried about predation by a lion, but in fact they are. Because <laughs> That's funny to me. Lions yeah. may go for days and not kill anything. Mm. And when they finally kill something, a pack of hyenas will come and steal it from them. So lions have to tolerate the company of other lions in order to scare away the hyenas. Interesting. I didn't know Interesting. that. Now, yes. is, that, is that like the, um, are those the male lions doing that or are those the female lions doing that? Just oh, curiosity. Yeah, you asked the killer question. Right. So it's the female, the isn't it? Well, the females it, do the hunting in, in the lions. Females are known for doing the hunting. Right. And the males, then once there's a kill, 
the males eat first and the females don't get anything until the males are sated and step back. And the reason is because the males will bite them and a bite causes pain and pain creates a neural circuit that says, whoa, I'm going to stay away from him when he's eating. So they're the bullies, basically. (laughs) So, So this can be put through many different filters. So one filter is that, you know, there's the the feminist filter, which is to say that it's a female-led group and the males are sort of like a paid security guard. (laughs) Kind of, yeah. Yeah, you're right. It's like almost like a mafia protection system, right? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah. But then there's another view, which is, I think, a little more factual, that um, sometimes, often the males are coordinating. Like when all the females are hunting, the males are co- the male is coordinating the hunt because coordinating hunting is really advanced skill, and very few creatures have it. So oh, okay. it's not politically correct to think that the male is coordinating things. So I'm going to repeat it in a politically correct way. Okay. Males, uh, males are expendable <laughs> in the sense that um, the, the perpetuation of a species' genes um, does not require as many males as females. So if that male gets killed, then the pride will still continue. Right. Makes sense. Yeah. I like that. So that's the first time I've ever heard that. Um, I had heard that, uh, what was it? That the role of the male lion was to sort of like keep other male lions at bay uh, in a territory. Are they doing that role too? Oh, they are doing that too. But when you call it a role... So is it a service to others? That's the thing they're doing for themselves. <laughs> um, okay. Okay. But then the service that they're providing to others, oh, well, part of that, it is a service because when other males enter the territory, you may have heard that they will eat the children, which right. is true. Yeah, yes. yeah. So it is, there is a service element, but I get it. They're not, they're not, they're not doing it for themselves. They're not doing it out of any altruistic that's that's your point, right? Right? Yeah. They're not doing it for the group. They're yes. doing it because that's what their chemicals are telling them to do. <laughs> right. Right. And right. the females are tolerating it because it has value. But they right. don't necessarily project into the future to know that it has value. They are also doing what their neurochemicals are telling them to do. Right. And their neurochemicals are naturally selected so that the successful brains survive and reproduce. Yeah, 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 yeah. And they're not, and they're not in a, a romantic love relationship with this dude either, right? <laughs> Obviously. I mean, they hang yeah. out when they need to, essentially. Yeah. yeah. So, Do you want to hear a romantic love example? I, I, um, I love okay. those. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. And then let's so, talk about all the neurochemicals if we can. In a romantic okay. love situation, because so we can meet our happy chemicals. Sorry. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So um, all of the happy chemicals are involved in love. Um, they all of the happy chemicals 
When I say happy chemicals, I mean dopamine, serotonin, oxytocin, and endorphin. Right. Now, all of them reward you when you do something that promotes the survival of your genes. Now, you're not thinking about your genes, but natural selection produced a brain that makes you happy when you do something that keeps your genes alive. Right. So, um, you're... Um, Oh, I forgot what was the what was the point here. You're talking about romantic love. Oh yeah. So um, <laughs> it's okay. Sorry. It's all right. So you can do a lot of different things to keep your genes alive, like getting food, getting good nutrition, um, getting uh, safety. But romantic love does more to keep your genes alive than a lot of other things. And so that's why it's rewarded with all the happy chemicals. So if you want, I'll explain each one yeah, and then yeah, we can yeah. talk about them. But just so we remember, so you were asked about romantic love. So not in nature, but there's one example in the chimp world that's sort of known for romantic love. So I can tell you that one now, or we yeah, can first. Like, let's, yeah, that's, I, like. I like that because that's a good that's setup. True. Because okay. yeah, yeah, definitely. So ordinarily, um, animals. I always say that um, there is no free love in nature. I that like there's that. always right. right. There's always there's a cost. There's always a preliminary qualifying event. I okay. call it. Okay. Um, so the, yeah, there there's a cost, and um, I always say that animals are incredibly picky about who they mate with. Oh yeah, yeah, brutally now, picky. It, <laughs> yes, brutally picky. Exactly. And, and well, they and, should be. Yes, and so the result is lots of frustration. And so even though you may think that mating frustrations are caused by your particular subculture. In fact, frustration is the norm. Okay? <laughs> well, that's good to know. That, that's yeah. good, that, yeah. that there is no utopia out there in, yeah. in the animal kingdom. Right. Yeah. Although it's sort of often represented that way. Right. So in each species, whatever the dynamic is, happens to fit the needs of their survival in their particular niche. So the way it works in chimpanzees is quite fascinating. They are known as being, quote unquote, promiscuous. Right. And interestingly, promiscuous is a biology term. It did not mean what we think of it until biologists started using it. And that's how it got the connotation. Interesting. Wow. Yeah. I didn't know that. See, I just, yeah. I just had a learning event. Wow. Yeah. So basically um, pop culture borrowed that from science. Yes, yes. Um, I'll tell you why it's funny. My my French teacher did not know the word in English. So in French, if you say this beach is very promiscuous, it means the beach is crowded. So the word means. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa, lost in translation so, there. <laughs> yeah. Right. So so biologists use that as a sort of a euphemism, and then. Um, uh, then it took on a meaning. So why is chimpanzee sex crowded or promiscuous? And the reason is that um, if the female mates with as many males in the group as possible, then it, um, it reduces, eliminates the incentive of those other males to harm her child. So oh, in most right. species, the adult males are separate from the females because they threaten the infants. 
but male chimpanzees are safe around infants as long as they have been one of the mating partners of that chimpanzee, of the female. Interesting. Now, before I get into the selection process, you should know that female chimps only have sex every five years, if you can imagine that. Wow. What a bummer for them. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So the reason is that the males are not interested in in them unless they're actively ovulating. Okay. And that doesn't happen for five years because they, they, when they're pregnant, it lasts nine months, just like us, and then... They are lactating for four years, and that prevents ovulation. Wow. So okay. when the big moment finally comes, there's competition among the males. And that competition can be very intense, but um, let's say the, the female is known for um, frequenting all of the males in the middle and upper ranks of the group until at a certain point in time when she's most fertile, the alpha pushes away the others and guards her. This is the observation. Yeah, big time. But sometimes she risks her life to go off into the bushes with one guy who is not high-ranking for the whole time. Wow, yeah, I saw that. That's the chimp definition of romantic love. (laughs) Right, right, right. No, I love that because I think I saw that somewhere where uh, I'm always watching those nature documentaries. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And and I see, yeah, you too, right? And I saw the, uh, they said, but this, this particular female is really interested in having that. I didn't get the part about the um, protecting the offspring part. Because, uh, you know, if, if the, if the males that, that was fascinating to me, but I did see the, you know, uh, I'm air quoting the chimpanzee cheating <laughs> and I thought that was fascinating. Okay. So let's bring that around and talk about how that, how romantic love works with humans and, uh, and then how each, um, happy chemical is involved because they're all involved and that's fascinating to me. Yeah, yeah. By the way, first I want to mention when you speak of watching all the nature shows, which I love, but the best, best, best ones are the ones by David Attenborough. Oh, so, so true. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, good, good. Yeah. Just want to make a plug for that. Um, <laughs> and they are sometimes less widely available, but definitely worth seeking out. And I got to love them so much that I went back and collected all the ones that are only available on VHS. Ooh, okay. <laughs> wow. Yikes. Uh, now you're going to have to make a project for yourself to, to convert those to DVD or something. Yeah, I'll bet that's illegal, but it's no, still it's a project. Not. It's not. It's not because you, you own a license of that VHS copy. So as long as you own that VHS, you can make a backup of it. You can't sell it, but you can make a backup of it. And, oh. and because VHS is a dying format, nobody's going to begrudge you at all. I mean, just keep the tape, you know, or at least keep the box if you want to clean out your house to say, see, look, I owned it. I bought a license. The media yeah. is not as important. Sorry. Now we're getting into like. <laughs> yeah. Well, when the BBC comes after me, I'll send them to you. Yeah. There you go. Have them call me. <laughs> Anyway, also, I wanted to mention that my new book, Habits of a Happy Brain, is dedicated to David Attenborough. Oh, that's great. 
Awesome. Awesome. Okay, cool. And we'll, let's take a break here before you get into the next thing, because I want to make sure I do this a couple times. So your main site is innermammalinstitute.org, correct? Yes. Okay, I got it right on the first try. And now you've got a blog at Psychology Today, right? Okay. And then your greatest hits, I know, are right on the innermammalinstitute.org, your favorite blog posts are there and then yes. it also links to your psychology today blog that's live and and updated right yes and okay. my psychology today blog is called your neurochemical self yeah, getting that. real with a 200 year old brain oh i said 200, it wrong 200 200 million no. <laughs> should i say that's okay should I say it again? if you want to say it again that's fine i'll edit it okay your neurochemical self Getting real with a 200 million year old brain. Perfect. All right. I love it. Um, okay. So we were about to talk about um, romantic love and then all of the different happy chemicals that are involved. So let's, I guess, okay. where's, the, where's the best place to start? Well, I always like to start with dopamine because dopamine is the experience that I think we most think of as happiness, even though it also is, causes plenty of frustration. Sure. So dopamine is the feeling of, I got it. So it's the feeling you get when you see a way to meet a need. Mm, and see a way that, to meet a need. Okay. Yeah. See a way to meet a need, which, is, which means, um, let's say I'm dying of thirst and I see an oasis. When I see that oasis, I'm thrilled, but I don't have the water in me yet. So I haven't met the need yet. So, but I see that I'm going to be able to meet the need. So when you imagine seeing an oasis when you're thirsty is a good example. Yeah. Okay. All right. So now relate that to, so romantic love, I guess that would be related to a mating opportunity. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Okay. But here's the thing. Let's say if you're looking, how do you know what the oasis is? Like, let's say if you're in a place where you see lots of potential mating partners, but you don't know whether you can get them. So the analogy is, let's say I'm a lion and I see lots of gazelles and I'm starving, but I know that I won't be able to reach most of those gazelles. And if I run and they get away, I'll exhaust my last bit of energy and I may die of starvation if I run after everything. So a lion scans and only releases his energy when he sees something he can get. Mm, That's what dopamine is doing for him. Yes. So dopamine gives you a good feeling that says, I can get that. Right. There's a lame duck that I could chase down, something like that, right? Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Yes. But now you see the romantic equivalent of that I can get that feeling. Yeah, okay. So, so if you see somebody say like I go to uh I don't know, church and somebody winks at me, right? <laughs> That is exactly the example. Very good. <laughs> All right. Good deal. Look at that. I, I might be slow, but I'm trainable. <laughs> okay, great. Yeah. So, okay. So now uh, I see her. She gave me a wink and I move towards her. So now, okay, so there's another chemical coming up. If she, if she like says I'm married or something, right, I'm, I'm going to get not so happy a chemical. 
So the not so happy chemical is cortisol. And in the state of nature, cortisol is pain. So let's say if when a gazelle is bitten by a lion, that's cortisol. And cortisol creates memory. All of these brain chemicals create a memory circuit. So once you're bitten, you're like, whoa, I'm never going to forget that again. And that's why it's so easy to have a bad feeling about so many things because everything that bit you once before, your brain is always trying to avoid it. But in, in the real world, where we're not always dying of thirst and looking for oasis, but you, we look for rewards and then often we say, oh, I'm not going to be able to get that. So we're disappointed. So disappointed is not quite as bad as pain, but your brain says, if you don't recover from this disappointment, eventually you'll have pain. So the cortisol starts flowing every time you're disappointed. But the more we try, 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 the more we risk getting disappointed, which is why we're always up and down, up and down. Wow. Yeah. See, now when you started talking about uh, that sort of up and down, that started like really making sense to me, you know, related to, you know, like your generic behaviors of, say, like trying to beat an addiction or something, you know, but let's talk about addiction a little bit more later. So back to like our, our, the woman that I saw in church, right? <laughs> and, and she winked at me. Okay. So, uh, I, I, she's got that come hither, you know, sort of look on her face. So I'm going to go and talk to her. And now she says, she starts flirting with me and laughing at my jokes when I know I'm not funny. What, what chemical might I, what, what happy chemical might come around in my body now? Thank you for asking. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> Um, so laughing is associated with endorphin. Okay, cool. But endorphin is more complicated than people think. Mm. So endorphin is the first happy chemical that started really to get investigated and understood. And each of the happy chemicals is similar to a drug. And as you might guess, endorphin is similar to Morphine, which means cocaine, opium, no, I said it wrong. Uh, endorphin is similar, to, is similar to morphine, which means heroin and opium. Opiates, yeah. yes. Okay. Cocaine is similar to dopamine. Gotcha. So that stimulates dopamine, so I said that. Okay. Um, so people who are hearing about runner's high... Right, And they get the idea that that's the way to stimulate endorphin. And then they got the idea sort of spread that this state of ecstasy is like an, a realistic goal. And we should strive for that all the time. Yeah. But we know physiologically how endorphin works. You can be much more realistic. So, you know, in the nature video, when the lion bites the zebra and, and the, rips the flesh off and the zebra is still able to keep running to try to save its life with the lion hanging on. So that stimulates endorphin. So in the state of nature, endorphin is nature's morphine. It masks pain. The way it masks pain is with a state of euphoria that 
does not improve our functioning at all, except when we're in this crisis mode. Yeah. And endorphin is only meant to last for 15 minutes because after that, we're meant to feel pain because pain tells you to protect your injuries. So that zebra, in 15 minutes, it will either escape from the lion and protect its injuries or it will die in an endorphin haze. So we are not meant to be on an endorphin high all the time. So if you try to run every day to get endorphin, you would not get it. If you ask runners, they don't get an endorphin high every day. They only get it when they overdo it. And if you mm. overdo it every day, you're injuring you're gonna, yourself. Yeah. Yeah. So the good news is you get a little bit when you laugh, but only a, a real laugh. And that's because it creates like a sort of a, a jiggling of your innards. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, just enough yeah. and not too yeah. much. Okay, yeah. not serious yeah. damage, but a little like make you feel yeah. good. Okay, yeah, interesting. And so it's interesting to see how when people flirt or um, are in love in the movies or something that they're laughing. But it's interesting that okay, anytime you're stimulating a happy chemical, it's connecting neurons. So when someone makes you laugh, that connects neurons that create the expectation. It creates positive expectations toward this person. But in point of fact, if you tell me the same joke every day, pretty soon I'm not going to laugh. Right. <laughs> I, right. <laughs> I won't find you so funny. The next time, you know? Right, right. But I will have the circuit that creates a positive expectation about you. So in a way, that's good. But in a way, it creates disappointment. Like, oh, he's not as funny as he used to be. Right, right, right. Which you is set, another. Yeah, you uh, set the bar yeah. kind of like uh, on the first yeah. time, and you were really funny then, and now you're not anymore. Got to be tough to be a comedian, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, but so. But also, it's tough. Like, everyday life is all up and down. That's know? true. That's true. And you're constantly, it's a give and take is again, what I was, uh, you know, you're always weighing, you know, I've got this much energy and I need to get X, Y, and Z. How, exactly. am, I, how am I best going to get that done? Kind of that's, Absolutely. The, yeah. And that's what your happy chemicals are helping you do. Absolutely. Right. It's just our, our modern society is kind of like, um, short circuiting these circuits, I think a little bit just because, you know, everything that we need is already kind of given. <laughs> And, but our, our, our old 200, old 200 million year old brain still thinks it's surviving. So I, you know, out in the world. So interesting. Okay. So, well, um, when you said something really interesting, when you said everything we need is already given now, most listeners would not agree with that. Mm. Uh, I do agree. I, I agree with you. Okay. Um, so, but I think it needs clarification. Okay. So, um, one thing is everything we need in terms of basic survival needs is mostly available because... Like food. You, yeah. Like many people... First, your brain is mostly formed by the time you're a teenager. And a teenager learns that even if I just sit on the couch and stare into space... 
my survival needs will be met. So that creates the expectation that your needs will be met even if you do nothing, except for one need, and that's another happy chemical that we can move on to, which is serotonin. Okay, let's do that one. (laughs) Yeah, so serotonin is that feeling of, I'm cool, I got it going on, let's say. Uh, All right. right. Yeah, I like that. So in biology parlance, it was called social dominance. But that theory has so gone out of favor that you read very little reference to it. But for the first hundred years of animal research, it was absolutely clear that all mammals created social hierarchy in their groups. And any extra energy they had, they invested in rising in the hierarchy. And that it worked, that that really, when you rise in the hierarchy, you have more surviving copies of your genes, higher survival rates for your offspring, more offspring with higher survival rates. And most important, that when you get a relative advantage over a peer, that it stimulates your serotonin and it feels good. And that rewards a mammal for asserting itself despite the fear of getting bitten. So if I'm a teenager just lying on the couch, I may not be starving to death, but I don't have that feeling of being sort of one up against someone else. So that is what gets us off the couch, but also leads people to feel disappointed, frustrated, and worse. Yeah. So that that leads me to uh, the the blog post that I didn't get a chance to read, but I want to. <laughs> it's always high school in your brain. Let's talk a little bit about that one and uh, and and what you know. I I see that you know I know what you're talking about because I <laughs> yeah. was in the Air Force 20 years. So and the other thing that I wanted to bring up was um, when when you talk about hierarchy. Now somebody out there listening might think it's all about work or it's all about how much money you've got in the bank, but it's right. really not, right? I mean, there's more to it than that and because your your chemicals and your limbic brain really are, they don't see, they, everything's relative to you and you in the moment and who you're hanging out with. So it, it doesn't really care how much money you have in the bank or where you Absolutely. live. <laughs> right. Right. Absolutely. It's informal hierarchies. It's really your feeling about it. So the example I always use is if you are number three on the world billionaires list and you fall to number four, you may have a sense of crisis like, oh my God, I've lost everything, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Whereas if you're a bus driver and you're telling everybody all day where to go and what to do, you may have more of a, a feeling of stimulating more serotonin in that way. Right, right. So it's all relative. That was when, when, you know, it's just relative to your personal social situation. Yes, but what it is, it's relative to the serotonin circuits that you built in your youth. And that generates expectations. So let's talk about why youth matters. And when I say youth, I mean up up, up through... um, 8 to 18, yeah, or 8 to 20, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, we can get to the H later. But first, we need to talk about a brain chemical called myelin. Right. So myelin is what turns... I said that a neural pathway is created. Um, we're all born with billions of neurons, but almost no connections between them. So who you are depends on which neural connections you built. They build from experience, and they build bigger and bigger with repeated experience. But anything you experience before you're 20, your brain is releasing myelin. And myelin is a substance that turns a neural pathway into a superhighway. And it's like the equivalent of having a naked wire versus a wire coated with plastic in the olden days, you know. Right. So I get it. <laughs> it, it literally coats a wire, literally, with fat, which you may have heard like young people need to eat fat. Mm -hmm. So it coats your neurons and that makes them conduct faster. And so anything you do with the neurons that you hooked up in your youth, you feel like it's effortless and therefore it's normal and it's natural and most important, it's safe. Because whatever you learn feels good or avoid feeling bad when you were young, so you feel safe when you're doing those things that you're wired for. Right. Whenever you try to do something different from what wired you in your teen years, then you feel like, oh, this isn't quite right because you're trying to force electricity down a pathway that's not developed. Even though you know you're doing the right thing, like not going out for another dose of heroin, <laughs> but, <laughs> but your, your myelinated pathway is saying, go for another dose of heroin. Sure. For, for example, right, right. Wow. So let's let's talk a little bit about um uh cuz you brought up heroin it made me think of addiction. And yeah. I've been talking to a couple of people now on my show that had been addicts and 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 survived and now are in recovery. And uh it it made me think this uh, one of them brought up this idea that People that end up in, in addicted, you know, with the severe addiction uh, habits and mm -hmm. then end up going through recovery, it seems like their, their um, formative wiring, you know, their circuitry, their myelinated circuits um, are vastly different than mine anyway. Does the happy chemical or, well, not happy in this instant, but does your, does your work talk a little bit? to addiction and, and that sort of situation? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you're bringing up addiction and recovery. So right, right. We'll you take one at a time. Both. Sure. Yeah, I wasn't sure which one you were. Um, so my, my favorite addiction story, you'll love this. So my zoo had a male elephant um, who turned 16. And that's very significant because male elephants are the it's the only species where the male gets a period when he reaches puberty. Wow. Um, look it up. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I believe it's you. Yeah. Um, it's not what you're, it's not exactly, it's, they get a surge of testosterone periodically. And in most mammalian species, there's competition among the males. And that competition depends on a variety of factors in each species, but often has to do with strength. And if the same guy always wins, then 
all the babies will have the same genes and then there will be inbreeding and that's not good for the species. So the way it works in elephants is like each guy has a testosterone surge at a different time and that ensures that each guy has a turn at being a parent so the young don't get inbred. Oh, that's, it's that's a good system, yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> so when our elephant turned 16... The zookeepers wanted to celebrate. They gave him a sheet cake for his birthday. Now, this elephant ate that sheet cake in one second. Like, (laughs) (laughs) Right, okay. Now, elephants usually live on trees. Like they eat tree branches and they chew all day, every day. So how much effort of chewing and digesting would an elephant have to go through to get the amount of calories that was in that one second of sheet cake? Like, it's like... All day. Yeah. 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 All day a week. All day a week. Okay. A whole week. All right. So when the elephant eats that sheet cake, his brain says, oh my God, this is it. This meets your needs. Get more of this. Okay. So that's that's like what heroin would be, for example, or what any artificial drug that it mimics the real reward that evolved over 200 million years, but it's more of that reward than you could get in nature. So it the rewards wire your brain to look for that. And when you get an artificial reward, that wires your brain to look for that artificial reward because it's so much more than a real reward that like your brain's like, oh, I'm not going to waste my time on like writing resumes when I can feel good so fast with this other thing. Right, right, right. It's a short circuit. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas writing resumes getting disappointed then i get a phone call i feel good but then i get disappointed again but then i have all these little ups and downs that's real life so real life is not fun every minute so our brain evolved whenever i feel frustrated i say okay my brain evolved to manage ups and downs i my brain was not meant to be flying every minute and in fact when you are flying you feel like crap as soon as you come down right so yes so there's not really a benefit to questing for an infinite high. Right. The benefit is more in sort of feeling confidence in your ability to, to even things out. I like that. That's a good message overall. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what, yeah. what are your thoughts then on, uh, on recovery if you wanted to take those two separately? Yeah. So the good thing about recovery is – and this can apply to anyone addicted or not, is you learn to build new pathways and then you learn that you can build new pathways. So what does it mean to build pathways? Once you're beyond puberty and you no longer have that nice myelin stuff, the only way to build new pathways is with repetition. And it takes more repetition than you think it should. And repetition is not fun. Right, right. So... And while you're repeating the new behavior, you're thinking, well, this is a big waste of time because that old thing felt good fast, you know? And it's not going to feel good. 
nothing is going to be, feel as good as the artificial stimulant. And when you repeat the new behavior, it's not going to feel natural or safe for a while. Not because it's unsafe, but because the analogy I use is your brain is like a jungle of neurons. And let's say if I'm going to go on a trip to the Amazon, there's a few freeways in the Amazon. But if I only go to the places in the Amazon that have a freeway, I'm not going to have the greatest experience. I'm going to be very limited in where I can go. And a lot of those roads go to yucky places. But if I want to go to cooler places in the Amazon, like maybe to see some cool tamarind monkey or something, but then I got to slash a trail. So what happens when you slash a trail? Well, first, it's really hard and exhausting. And then if I go back to a trail that I slashed yesterday, it's already grown over. So if I return to the same trail every day, for 45 days, that I'll at least slash it enough that I have a little path without having to keep getting out my machete every day. So that's basically what recovery is, to build a new circuit by repeating the same behavior that you'd like every day for 45 days so that you do build new connections between your neurons. They may not be super highways like you're used to, but they are a real pathway. I love that. That's great. Yeah. So are, are there like tips that go along with that? Like, um, do you want to, I, I remember, I know somebody, I think it was the Zen habits guy always said when you try, when he want, recommends building habits, he says they should be like, um, small and fun. Do you recommend that too? Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, in my book, I have lots of, um, lots of, Lots of little words to uh, remind you of these um, sort of pointers of, to make okay. it easier. Great. So I'm, I'm just trying to think of the ones of my language for small and fun. So, um, <laughs> so <laughs> the fun thing, I call it graft, which means you already have this neural network, which is sort of like a tree. And you built the trunk and the big branches. You built the trunk like before you were two years old. And then you build the branches all through your youth. And later on, we're able to build like little twigs, but we're not able to build like huge branches. So it works better if you build onto a branch that you already have, which is why people often tend to return to something they loved when they were young. So. If I return to something that I loved when I was young, my something is not really necessarily any better than your something, but my something is already wired to my happy chemicals, and your something is already wired to your happy chemicals. So trying to sort of work with the foundation that already exists in your brain, even though the foundation got there just by random chance of, like when I was young, I watched my mother enjoying this and when you were young, you watched your mother enjoying that. So we sort of built different. Yeah, different trunks. branches. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That yeah. makes sense. Now, I want to just, uh, since we're on a similar topic, I want to explain one thing that does not work. Okay. okay? Sure. Um, a lot of things you hear in the media, they get there because someone funded a big study. And someone funded a big study because people want 
easy answers. Like I could go to the doctor and the doctor will fix me. So one of the easy answers people like is the idea that if your kids are having trouble, don't worry, their brain hasn't matured yet. Don't worry, they'll mature. Bad advice, okay? Right, I agree. The brain learns from experience. So if your kid is, when I say your kid, you know, still in the myelin years, if your kid is having um, un, unfruitful uh, experiences and you think it's going to fix itself and the word mature means like as if it's going to just fix itself. No, because the brain learns from experience. So if, if a young person engages in dysfunctional behaviors and they still get all their needs met, they're going to think, hey, this is the way to live. I'm going to just engage in these dysfunctional behaviors and everything will work out fine because it always has. It's really not a good idea to, to just let it go on the assumption that it will fix itself. On the contrary, you're, you're wiring that kid to believe that that's going to work. And right. then when they face the real world, they're going to be, whoa, what went wrong? Right. That's the time to step in and say, time out. <laughs> and say, this is not how this works. Right. That's not okay. I like that. Yeah. That, yeah. yeah and that's is, not politically correct to say anymore either, right? Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Right. And, and once again, you get a really bad short run result because if this kid already has a lot of their neural circuitry based on that dysfunctional behavior, but you can still hurry up in the last of their mile in years and help them start building a new circuit. Yeah. And uh, just like when people think these mile in years, oh, what, that's not really, you know, just so you think, just so you realize why it really matters. In the state of nature, when you reach puberty, you know, you, you started having babies. Right. But in every species, there's some way to avoid inbreeding. Now, animals can't possibly think about conception conceptually, and yet every species avoids inbreeding. So the way it worked in humans was um, people often found someone like in another tribe in one way or another. When you move to another tribe, you have to learn new faces, new ways to find food, new ways to find your way home at night in the dark, and often a new language. So that's why the brain needed an ability to build a whole bunch of new neural pathways in puberty, because wow. that's when you're rewiring yourself for a new environment. After that, your brain is, excuse the expression, sort of done learning <laughs> in the right, sense right. that nobody likes to believe that, like, I was done learning in high school. And, but what happens is, in the state of nature, you started having babies right away, and those babies cried until you found food. So you were so busy meeting immediate survival needs that you were not going to say, I think I'm going to find myself and throw out everything I learned and rethink it. That's not the job our brain evolved to do. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So that kind of 
puts to question the whole idea of a midlife crisis or an early retirement. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Now that also has really profound natural roots. So the fact is that we are always trying to deal with the concept of death. Okay, excuse me, I'm going to say that mean word, death, death, death. Okay. We're all going to die. It's okay. Yeah. It's part of yes. my show. <laughs> really? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I don't know if it's come up before, but I've uh, I've embraced that, you know, that, you know, we're all going to be food for worms one day. You know, we don't walk around thinking it maybe in our co- in our cortex, but our limbic system knows it every day. right? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So, well, so here's the thing. Animals don't conceptualize about death because right. they don't think about the future. So when a gazelle is running from a lion they connect that to pain Mm -hmm. and they also have some hardwired circuits, but they don't have death as an abstract concept, but we are able to to visualize the future, to visualize things that we can't touch and feel. So even when we're not in pain, we could scare ourselves to death. You know, we can can terrify ourselves imagining bad stuff and once you solve a problem, your brain goes to the next bad stuff. So your brain never stops sort of scanning for lions. Right. So wow. that's really horrible. So what calms us down? So what calms us down is um, there's two ways to think about it. So one is just distraction. So anything can distract you. And distracting you gets you away from that thought of death or pain or risk or threat. But then the distraction can become a bad habit and then that gets you back to threat. (laughs) Right. That's the vicious circle, that vicious cycle. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, yes. So the alternative is, in one word, legacy. So legacy is the survival of your genes. Now, we're not consciously thinking, oh, I'll be happy as long as, I, as my genes survive. But our brain sort of evolved to like anything that promotes the survival of my genes makes us happy. And that's why people sort of do things that they feel like my unique individual essence will live on if I do this. And that triggers our happy chemicals. Wow. So... So like uh, things that like if I were to have a statue built of me, right? Oh, look, right? (laughs) And that will make you happy for a few minutes. Yeah, right, right. You know what? uh, And and you can comment on this or not, but uh, the thought whenever I think of legacy, it sort of falls empty now to me. Um, And it has for a while. Um, Mostly it was because I recently saw... Well, within the last couple of years that Carl Sagan had this thing about the earth as a pale blue dot. And it's basically like just this, you know, like little moat of dust floating in this vast expanse of black. So, you know, whatever our legacy is, is still on a pale blue dot, you know, hovering in the vastness of space. That's so I think... <laughs> how, how, what do you say to that? 
This is a, a very widely shared meme now, which is like, you don't matter. You are inconsequential. We are all inconsequential. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, it's the theme of so much. We don't even have to list it. Um, but it's, it depresses people. So yeah. I really think it's a loop. You get depressed and then you look outside yourself for a solution to that depression. And when you do that, you end up with a lot more of this meme or, you know, we are all inconsequential. Interesting. Um, yeah, that makes sense. We are not evolved to see ourselves as inconsequential. I call it self-hate. So mm. there's this whole meme of just care about others. Don't care about yourself. You don't matter. So I could put it in like the empathy bandwagon is like, if you just care about others, you will make yourself happy. But effectively, it leads people to bitter, bitterness mm. because mm. the brain evolved for re, um, reciprocity. And so many people have an implied bargain. If I care about others, others will care about me. Right. And, and then it's like, like to... yeah, but they don't care about me. Nobody cares about me. Nobody cares about me. So right. they think they're so selfless, but they end up being really bitter. So sure. the whole selflessness beam, which is on the empathy bandwagon, it doesn't make people happy. And then they end up, they look for a pill. And that's a loop because whatever pill it is doesn't work forever. So then they add another pill to it and another pill and another pill. So my suggestion is to accept the fact that you are a mammal, that your brain sees itself as the center of the world. Your neurochemistry is designed to feel good when you take a step ahead. And when you indoctrinate yourself, I shouldn't care about myself, you're wiring yourself for depression. Oh, that makes I sense. Think. Okay. Yeah, I, I don't know. You know, I, I think I was rationalizing a little bit. And I always, I saw uh, this TV show called True Detective. And one of the guys, one of the detectives was a true pessimist. Okay. And he uh -huh. was always talking about everything existential dready. And, you know, we're on a, you know, <laughs> and, and the, here's the thing was, was I've always considered myself an optimist. And even the pale blue dot, instead of thinking, oh, I'm going to die, I don't matter, and, none, and nothing I do matters, it's more of like, uh, I don't have to prove anything to know I'm worthy, is the message I take out of that. Is that better? Is that better for you? <laughs> okay. Um, it's, it's, it's a start. Yeah, okay. Um, and, and it is um, uh, another widely accepted theme. Um. I think, though, if I put it in monkey terms, sure. so a monkey who says, I'm okay the way I am, I don't need to prove myself, if he doesn't ever take the risk of asserting himself, he's probably not going to get much mating opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. I, I chose a long time ago not to have kids, but I've been married 22 years. Ah. <laughs> this is funny. And this is this is the eye mammal of Jeff. <laughs> sorry. Okay. No, that's okay. So, I love it. I, I love it. Well, I didn't want to make it just he. So I also want to say she. If she doesn't assert herself, 
she is not going to get enough nutrition and her babies are going to starve to death if she right. doesn't produce the nutrition to feed them she's going to watch her babies die yeah, yeah, so i'm not that. saying that everybody should go out and have as many babies as possible right. but what i'm saying your is, brain wants to though yeah but it doesn't have to be babies in the modern world because we abstract and conceptualize that's why i call it your you unique individual think. essence okay so a podcast uh-huh. is a, your unique individual essence and not to mention just any podcast but your podcast has a concept which is brilliant which no one else has which is your thought and I like it and so I wouldn't have thought of that theme if I hadn't heard it from you and so now I'm going to tell people hey I heard about this podcast isn't that a great idea so <laughs> right <laughs> so that is spreading your unique individual essence oh look at you now you made me feel good. <laughs> You're pretty good at this. Uh, okay. So the uh, the last thing, we're getting close up on an hour, so uh, I'll, I'll let you go. I'm sure you've got things to do. Um, but I wanted to ask you a question because I'm really curious. Yeah. So all, as I was reading uh, your book, um, the thought occurred to me that if you spent some time um, applying these concepts to like high performance teams, I think you get paid a lot of money. (laughs) Okay. Like a Um, a professional football team, I think could learn a lot. Now you would probably have to go learn a little bit about football. Maybe, I don't know, but the, the social dynamic and the art and science of motivating people to high performance. uh, I think they know a lot of everything that, you know, Um, but I don't think that it's been framed, um, the way you frame it. Um, so, and I know they hire coaches and speakers like every season and there's 32 of them and they all have huge budgets. Okay. So this was a business idea for you. Oh, well, I can see the Oakland Coliseum from my home. Go see the Raiders. (laughs) Thank you. Great idea. Right. Um, And uh, uh, because of your unique individual concept, I was thinking about that Veer moment. Um, Oh, yeah, definitely. We forgot to do your Veer moment. (laughs) We're just chatting now. Okay, yes. Give us your room Veer story. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. So, so first my room, you know, like anybody else, my room is like ups and downs and had a long career as a college professor. Um, I won't go into all the, all the frustrations, but uh, the way I just summarize and and say that, uh, well, I was always very interested in what motivated people, uh, had a very good, uh, uh, had a very good reason. My mother was very unhappy person right and she had rages and when I, even when I was a little kid she would blame her rages on me like you wow. know if she, if she was screaming at me that it was my fault that I made her do it and so my little brain I thought I don't really believe that I made you do that you know so I always like wondered what made people so crazy sure and had good reason to find the answer and as a professor of management and studying psychology and reading everything I could find for years and years, 
always prevailing theories were not that convincing to me until I discovered the neurochemistry of animals. And in every book I read, there was like a little mention of it. And so I started seeking it out and found more and more and more. But it was so much conflicting with what I read elsewhere. And I was like, why is nobody else explaining this? And a moment when I was like, oh, my God, this is, this is the deal. I got I to gotta really spread this. So the moment was... There was a zoo in France called the Valley of Monkeys, the Vallée des Singes. And it's an all-primate zoo. And they even have, like, places where you could go up and touch them. Like, you know, yeah, they're right, right there, which is so not allowed here. Right. So in every um, island of monkeys, like in each separate species, there is a zookeeper that explains things. And she was explaining all the David Attenborough stuff about how there's competition over mating opportunity. Now, this is all like politically incorrect today. Like most of the monkey stories that are coming out of academia are suggesting that monkeys are empathetic and cooperative. And all they, the way they are the 99% of the time is like nobody talks about it. So here we're like French people talking about it in public. <laughs> so, <laughs> okay. Uh, so I was like, this is so cool. But when I was listening to them talking about the baboons, this French zookeeper was saying that if you don't rise in the hierarchy, that you will never be a father. Like, wow, that's amazing. So after the talk, I wasn't sure if I understood correctly. So I went and asked her in my best French, um, did I understand you correctly? Are you saying that the guy at the bottom of the hierarchy will never have sex his whole life? And she said, oh, he'll have sex. He just won't be a father. And I thought, whoa, how could that be? <laughs> what do you mean he'll have sex, but he won't be a father? But I thought, no way can I have this conversation in French. This is too, <laughs> I'm not going to understand the answer, you right. know. Oh, so I went home and started researching it. But it was, and, and I discovered what the answer is, is um, how strong the smell of the female's ovulation is like how motivating. So the guys in the middle and the top of the hierarchy when they only smell a little bit of fertility, they, they think, ah, that's not even worth fighting over because they really have real fights that they could really get injured. So it's only the guys at the bottom of the hierarchy that are going to bother when there's only a little bit of a smell. And with that little bit of smell, the female is not really fertile. So it's oh. sort of like training. So, but when I, I, I know this sounds really obscure, but the bottom line is that because they were able to talk about this in public, it's the tabooness, it's not sex, it's not evolution, it's the fact that there's competition at the core of nature. Right. And it's real physiological thing. And the more I thought about it and wrote about it and read about it and talked to people about it, in my academic world, it was so taboo to talk about the fact that there was, that we did not just evolve to be egalitarian, but that there's competition. 
And when I started writing about it, I would hear these voices in my head of like, you know, you will be shunned, like you will be ridiculed. No one will ever talk to you again if you acknowledge this. And then I thought, well, you know what? They talk about it in France, and so I'm going to talk about it too. Good for you. Um, (laughs) And it was just at that time that I got this email that informed me that I could retire when I was 50. And I was like, whoa, I never thought of that before. And so it's like when I turned 50, I went for it. Congratulations. Yeah. I can relate another story too, because uh, I, like I said, I was in the Air Force, right? And I know that, you know, that's not a direct correlation of the, of, competing for that, that, uh, the next higher grade or whatever. Um, but you know, the military has rank, right? So it's a real easy sort of, you know, they, it's, they're rack and stacking people on a, you know, one by one every day. Right. So you're always real clear where you stand in, in the artificial hierarchy. Um, but I don't even, I was rather young in my 20 year career where I looked up and I saw what you needed to, to do in order to be uh, yes. like the two highest ranks. Yeah. Um, and I didn't want that. Okay. Yes. And so I, I saw my goal. I was like, that's, that's high enough for me. I, I'll go there, but I don't want the next two. And, and, and I shaped my career to get there as, you know, I didn't get there as fast as I could have, um, but I got there and I got there within the 20 year mark and, you know, more or less met my goals. Right. So, and I get that, that, that it's, that hierarchy is an artificial layering over the top of the, the real neurochemistry hierarchy. Um, but you know, that's, that's kind of like, um, uh, a cortex decision, right? That absolutely, absolutely. And, and I did the same thing. I know exactly what you mean. So, um, just want to mention that my book about the psychology of social hierarchy is I mammal, why your brain links status and happiness. And that's the one rather than being about all the happy chemicals and how to retrain yourself, it focuses on serotonin and the frustrations we have. Now you called it artificial hierarchy and I, and I agree, but we might call it like formal hierarchy and informal hierarchy. Okay. But many pe- most people would like blame the military for creating the hierarchy, or they blame the company, or they blame capitalism for creating. I was the hierarchy. doing that. I, I until I read your book, I was doing that. I yeah. thought it was all artificial. I actually thought it was created by the military. That it didn't yes. exist in nature. Now, I, yes. I, had, I had heard about the alpha and the omega and the beta and all that classical sort of uh, ranky thing, but I didn't really apply it to me. But yeah. it makes complete sense that, that animals are doing it all the time every day. Well, the simple example I always use is if you filled a room with people who say they don't care about status and you lock the door they will soon form a hierarchy based on how much they insist they don't care about status. (laughs) So true. (laughs) Okay, so let's go through your stuff again. InnerMammalInstitute.org, right? That's your your main site. Um, And then let's just run, go ahead and run through your books again. Uh, well, first, if you go to the org, you'll be offered a free five-day happy chemical jumpstart. Right. So I signed up real, for that. Yeah. 
I got my first one. Five ways to boost your natural happy chemicals. Yay. (laughs) So the first message explains these concepts of uh, how your happy chemical circuits built from early experience and what it takes to build a new one. And then the next four messages are about each of the four happy chemicals. That's cool. That's cool. So let's go through your books. So um, my new book coming out in January is Habits of a Happy Brain, Retrain Your Brain to Boost Your Serotonin, Dopamine, Oxytocin, and Endorphin. Right. Can't wait. And this is about how to, again, uh, build new happy chemical circuits. Right. Now, my last books were uh, I Mammal, Why Your Brain Links Status and Happiness. And this is about the serotonin boost that we feel when we feel important or pride or assertion or I call it the one-uppy feeling when you feel oh, I'm a little bit ahead yeah, and yeah. we're always trying to get a little bit ahead yeah. and we, when we see other people doing that we get so mad and yet yeah. we doing it ourselves and it's very contextualized too so the next time we talk let's talk more about that yeah because we didn't have time to hit that as much yeah, and also we didn't hit oxytocin when we were talking right. about we missed o- oxytocin, yeah, right? Which is the herd behavior feeling, yeah, and uh, lots of that. And there's lots of that in my other book, Beyond Cynical: Transcend Your Mammalian Negativity. So this, all of my books explain cortisol and why we get that pain slash threatened feeling a lot, and how we. Um, distract ourselves by stimulating our cortisol and beyond cynical explains how cynicism is actually built on uh, happy chemical circuits we make ourselves have some people make themselves happy with cynicism but it's a bad loop and you can build a happier loop i like that like optimism <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah um as soon as you say the word optimism uh, listeners may have an instant negative uh, reaction right. to that because not Pollyanna, though. Exactly. Right. And because they associate it with disappointment, and mm. so my method, I I call it to to pair your cynicism, and pair stands for personal agency and realistic expectations. Oh, that's good. That's really good. Yeah. Okay, and then you also have your blog at Psychology Today. That's where you um, write. Uh, how often do you write uh, your blog over there? Well, now I have two blogs. So I okay. have one blog on um, psychologytoday.com, your neurochemical self, about once a month. And then I have a monthly blog on a site called thepositivepsychologypeople.com. Ooh, I like those guys. Yeah. yeah. I came yeah. close to doing a positive psychology degree, but I didn't. <laughs> All right. This has been great, Loretta. Thank you so much for, uh, for spending time chatting with me and, uh, we'll, we'll talk again soon. Great. Thanks. All right. Talk to you later. Bye. Thanks for taking the time to ride along with us on another episode of Vroom Vroom Veer. For podcast info and show notes, be sure to head over to vvveer.com. That's triple V double E-R.com. Man, that's fun to say. And we'll catch up with you next time here on Vroom Vroom Veer.